0: Welcome IronRadio.org listeners, this is Lonnie Lowry, I am a nutrition and an exercise physiology professor, and I'm an occasionally competitive bodybuilder.
1: Occasionally. Rob Fortress, I'm a journalist, uh, bodybuilding enthusiast, still, even though I don't compete as a bodybuilder anymore, and powerlifting
2: guy. Powerlifting guy. This is Phil Stevens, I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, sometimes Highland Games athlete, and I run strengthbuilderforhope.org.
0: Fantastic. Hey everybody, we have a ton of uh news here and we have a guest who's actually sitting here with me. Normally, of course, we Skype out, but uh it's Mike Walker who is an Olympic Games hopeful. Uh maybe just say hi, Mike.
3: <laughs> How's it going, everybody?
4: <laughs>
0: okay, oh, we're going to start with some news um because we have a lot of it.
4: Strength and muscle sport news.
0: Um industry news, science news, um Listener uh, news. And one of the things I wanted to bring up uh, first, just to sort of clear the air, is we got an email from um, a listener who we'll just call HH. Um, and he says, hi, guys, I've you know, written before several times, and he had some very thoughtful commentary, and I just wanted to address it. Um, I think he was mostly concerned about uh, a little bit of uh, medicine bashing, uh, or at least concerns over conspiracy theorizing in the last episode, Um and I just wanted to point out a couple of things. So first, um, around minute 42 of the last episode, uh, I I did, in fact, point out, let's not be conspiracy theorists. I mean, it is interesting to point at things like financial drivers of some of the big pharmaceutical firms or whatnot. Um, and actually, toward that end, I wanted to make a point uh, to the listener, which was um, one of the references he gave me um, from Psychiatry Online. I thought it, it was actually very interesting in that it actually supports one of the points. Um, the reference was about how uh, SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are antidepressant meds, um, we were talking about how Dr. Andrew Wheel, back in December 2nd, 2011, on the Science Friday podcast, he actually commented that for mild to moderate depression, SSRIs are probably no better than placebo. And the listener pointed out, yes, they are. Uh, and here's a reference. And I really appreciate references, of course. Interestingly, going to the reference, though, which um, is entitled Treatment of Patients with Major Depressive Disorder. Uh, first of all, this is major depressive disorder. Um, and at no point, I think, did we, I hope we didn't even suggest, but at no point did we say that SSRIs or any other antidepressants aren't good for depression and everybody should get off them and just go to the gym. I mean, that's... That's not responsible. Um,
1: yeah, but there because, is a because, difference. Because, because if you start doing things like that, you start talking, sound like Tom
0: Cruise. <laughs> you know. Right, right. We're not going there. I will point this out, though, that the reference there that I just mentioned, um, on the second page of financial disclosures, and I think uh, our guest last week, Ken, would go nuts with this. And I'm not disrespecting him either, but it says the first author, Dr. So-and-so, I won't mention names, uh, reports consulting for Eli Lilly. Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Wyeth, Novartis, and I could go on and on down the list. The second author reports that she has received funding support from Eli Lilly, smith klein Beecham, blah, 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 down the list. So, in in other words, um, when it comes to standards of practice, which we were, uh, I hope, respectfully questioning last time, uh, Ken's point was that there's a lot of financial driving behind this, and I do think the financial drivers may affect... Uh, practice now. Having said that, we certainly, again, again, we're not saying anybody get off your antidepressant meds. I mean, this is a topic that my wife is a counselor. You know, uh, this is a close to home topic we're all aware of. So, it's not the kind of thing that we would suggest. Uh, I will say this though: listen to Dr. Andrew Wiles' mm, interview from again, December second, twenty eleven. About his, it was about his book, Spontaneous Happiness, and he's just sort of questioning. Uh, some of these, uh, studies. But I want to address these point by point quickly. Number one, antidepressants are used with a wide range of disorders, some mild, some severe. I don't dispute that in any way. That is absolutely true, uh, and I'm not the expert. Um, number two, the more severe your diagnosis, the more likely you will benefit from antidepressants, between 50 to 75% response rates. Um, again, Dr. Andrew Weil and uh, we should clarify that there are differences right um, There are differences in mild to moderate depression versus severe depression, although I still think gym memberships and omega three fats could be nice complementary therapies probably to uh, to medications, uh, but not fully alternative um, anyway, number point number three is something that caught my eye, and that says placebo effects. Our patients responding to care with a non-active agent? They still see a doctor, they still get education, they still take a pill, it's harder to beat a placebo as a result. Uh, I think we need to be careful. I fully understand that it's hard to have a true control group in medical settings because you can't deny people treatment. Uh, but having said that, if you take two groups, A and B, and they're treated exactly the same, the same cognitive behavioral therapy, the same everything, um, one group gets the test drug and another group does not. If they are equal in the end and they were treated identically, then that suggests the drug doesn't do anything. It still suggests it doesn't do anything. Uh, both groups, again, treated exactly the same in every way except one, the presence of the SSRI. So statistically, that should make the SSRI group look better uh, because it's got to be the, the only thing that's causing any differences because they're treated the same in every other way. Again, I know that's difficult in medicine, but having said that, you know, I I still think um, the placebo issue here, as is pointed out, it's not necessarily proving the SSRI's work. I don't don't think it invalidates what we were saying at all, really. Again, two groups treated identically, except for the presence or the absence of the test substance, Um, you would expect the test substance to make the average of that group different, to make it change. And if it doesn't always do that, for, again, mild to moderate depression, you know, it's something to consider. Um, and then also it talks about, uh, number five here, point in this email, there are non-medical therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy that are effective and increase success rate when co-applied with medications. Um, don't dispute that at all. Totally agree. Thank you for that comment. Number six, exercise is an excellent antidepressant when used in proper dose. Again, absolutely uh, I, I do want to read something just very quickly from the Cochrane database. Um, instead of from a big national group, this is um, Cochrane uh, is a database of evidence-based practice. And when you look through some of the Cochrane database uh, studies, you can find some interesting things. I mean, anybody who starts looking around Medline, in fact, will find things that SSRIs may increase stroke risk, fracture risk. There are certain concerns with these, as there are with any medication. But again, we're not bashing them Um We're just suggesting that things like fish oils and lifting weights are great adjuvant kinds of therapies. Um, Also, we should point out that combinations of different antidepressant meds may be more effective than any single one. So there's so many things to think about here. Um, But here's an interesting paper, and I bring this up only because it's it's fairly recent, November 2012, from Hetrick and colleagues. It's called Newer Generation Antidepressants for Depressive Disorders, in this case in children and adolescents. It says, um, there have been warnings against the use of SSRIs in populations due to concerns about increased risk of suicidal ideation and behavior. So although the antidepressants are hopefully helpful, um, that's one of those uh, almost ironic side effects, that they could actually increase uh, suicidal thoughts, for yeah, example. Yeah, and that's actually, uh, that, that's
1: actually a very common well, one that you see in even mainstream literature that pertains to these kind of medications. So, as you say, it is kind of very, um, you know, ironic,
0: but it's true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it says overall there was evidence that those treated with antidepressants did have lower depression severity scores. Um, it says, however, the size of these effects was small, uh, with a reduction in depressive symptoms of 3.5 on roughly a 100-point scale. So, uh, but anyway, I would point people to go read these sorts of things. It says there was evidence of an increased risk of suicide-related outcomes for those on antidepressants compared to placebo. Uh, anyway, pros and cons with a lot of these meds, and um, having a science interest on the show, I sure didn't want to bash the medical establishment too much, although I do think questioning authority is healthy. Um, in, in fact, like I said, one of the references that was sent, um, the financial disclosure page would raise an eyebrow, I think, of our guest last week. So, um, <clears throat> exercise, great. Fish oils, great. Uh, adjuvant therapies, we're not saying instead of, but, you know, they're very valuable things.
2: So, we'll leave it at yeah. be. Before, this has been a big week for, for science in the industry um, and some fighting, but I wanted to touch on medicine a little bit more and give a congratulations one of my clients who joined us about three months ago came in friday night and gave us good news after three months with us she went to the doctor and they took her totally off her type 2 diabetes medication
4: so yeah with
2: extra little exercise and diet goes a long way so it was a fun thing but um like i said lonnie hasn't heard this yet so i figured yeah you'd get a kick out of this one there's been a a lot of stuff going on about scientific principles in the training training world and stuff like that. And one of the big ones that started th- to do was uh, Greg Glassman, the uh, leader of CrossFit, came out and uh, on his Facebook page, they they unleashed him and let him talk again, I guess. And uh, here's this quote. No successful strength and conditioning program has anywhere ever been derived from scientific principles. Those claiming efficiency and legitimacy on the basis of theories... They've either invented or corralled to explain their programming are guilty of fraud. Programming derives from clinical practice and can only be justified or legitimized by the results of that practice.
0: That's the classic argument <laughs> we were talking about last yeah. week, isn't it? Between, between scientists and clinicians, both claiming that they're the pinnacle of the profession.
2: Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, So everybody's all over the place here. Even, even guys that we would think of more as a total practitioner, um, Dave Tate came out with a big thing he's like what are you telling me you know the, the last 20 30 years that i've been studying training is you know it it means nothing you know despite that he was in the gym doing it too and that's that was my argument it's like no it's kind of a it's like any it's like medicine it's it's where science and practitioner meets that great things happen
0: well hence the concept of translational science or translational medicine we, we brought up last week right which is the the scientific evidence, the different types of trials. Yeah. They provide evidence to pl- practitioners who can then decide, you know, how well that's working with their clients or their patients and then give feedback so the next discovery can be made, yeah. you know. But I really hate when someone starts to rip science like that. Clearly, we've made progress, whether yeah. it's pharmaceuticals, health, exercise physiology itself. Uh, in fact, x has a very deep very rich history of controlled science going back for decades, whether you think of like a, the American College of Sports Medicine, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, and although science sometimes does play catch up with what people are doing in practice, um, there's definitely enough science to help create programming. Yeah, You know, the different kind of adaptations of the body, how to assess and monitor people. Um, y- just on and on. So, I, I, yeah. that's so offensive. But I think that's the calling card of someone who doesn't know any better. Yeah.
2: And that's uh, kind of the resounding theme. And, you know, me, I really kind of took it as a a way to justify the silly stuff they have people do. <laughs> you know, I mean, how else are you going to justify having people do, there. you know, 700 burpees <laughs> followed by five minutes of snatches, followed by a rope climb, falling into the splits, and doing backflips? You know, um, yeah
3: well and i i think you kind of hit on it right there uh phil with that you know because i have a unique perspective constantly going around with the columbus weightlifting club where i train Mm -hmm. we end up at a lot of crossfit boxes you know teaching usaw certifications and you know teaching clinics and teaching technique on the olympic lifts and a lot of times you know since i've been training the big thing i always hear is well this is the crossfit way to do it it's the better way you know or or they do something really extreme Mm -hmm. and you know to a lot of outside people, like I'm going to have my master's degree in exercise phys in the spring, and I got a bachelor's degree in strength and conditioning. Yeah. And I started weightlifting when I was 10 years old. So I'm kind of like you guys are talking about, more the hybrid, you know, part of it's practice, part of it's science. And the one thing I realized that I would always question to a lot of CrossFitters, I'm like, well, why do you do that? Yeah. And their answer usually was always the same. Oh, it's intense. It's extreme. Yes, you know, exactly. I'm pushing my body. Exactly. It's like you can get hit by a car. That's pretty intense, too, but you're not going to see me go do it, yeah. you know? And I think a statement like he made is what you said. You know, it's just now they have a justification. Yes. Now they're saying, "Well, this is why we're doing it. Here's the reason." Pish posh. You know, science isn't right. We're doing it because we practice it, and you scientists don't know. No,
2: I agree. And I mean, that's I got kind of the same background as Mike. Not not degrees and whatnot, but going to a lot of Crossfits and, and helping them out. And jeez, I mean, that's my. I, I've met a lot of great people in there, and all the problems I've seen really filter down from fricking HQ and the stuff they're feeding people like this.
0: Um, so. And I agree with what both you guys are saying, that eventually science will observe and record this stuff, uh, despite the differences in social background or genetics or what have you. Science is still important because otherwise you don't make that, you know, write it down and inch forward kinds of progress. And that's why we see society progress in general. Otherwise, we'd be doing nothing but like word of mouth caveman Kinds of you know uh, progress instead of systematically writing the stuff down and analyzing it to make sure with a high probability it's correct, mm. you know. So uh, yeah, the the bashing of it, it again, it just kind of shows ignorance. I think. Yeah,
2: and uh, on the on the science point and stuff that's been going on this week, and there was the another late thing was yesterday. Um, Lane Norton was having it out with Dorian Yates. Um, oh boy! And yeah, it was pretty. A, a little heated discussion on HIT versus high volume and you know, basically Lane telling him to cite specific points and Dorian saying well, my specific point is I was six-time Mr. Olympia and it works in the gym for me, so let's just kind of leave it at that. Um, so, yeah. Another one of those uh, why did it even happen arguments? Um, who's, who's it helping? Anybody? You know? Um,
0: I think Dorian's a very smart guy yeah. and Rob knows him better than we do, um, but I don't think he's the kind of person who would make that cardinal sin, which is, it works for me, so everybody should do it. Um, You know what I mean? Obviously, there's differences in um, drug use there. I mean, what worked for Dorian or some of these gurus that are online, you know, that use a lot of anabolics or GH or whatever. Obviously, the rules are different for them. Uh, But I, I also, you know... I don't think Dorian is the kind of guy who's going to bash science either. Lane is a great guy. I really like him, and we've had him on the show before. Um, Maybe he was just a little bit overzealous, you know, because he does understand the science, and he's quick to jump at it. Um, But again, that doesn't invalidate what Dorian did, at least as as long as Dorian doesn't over-conclude and apply it to everybody. You know, I do it so it'll work for everybody. You know, these, these kind
1: of discussions and arguments and debates... Rage forever on and the amount of variables that would have to be addressed to even start to understand, you know, the, the validity of anybody saying anything about anything is, is just, is just, is, is insurmountable. I mean, like you were kind of touching on there, Lonnie, the whole idea of, you know, like, <sighs> Drugs, genetics, experiences. I mean, who's to say that Dorian would have been wouldn't have been better if he had tried some high volume approach? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he would have been, you know. And who would have said that Arnold wouldn't have been better if he tried more of a kind of a you know quote unquote heavy duty,
0: low volume approach? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Yes, no. right. And who knows? Well, there's if, more than one way to skin a cat. Yeah. Whether it's fat loss or muscle gain, because I know that Lane, for example, um, his opinion is that mild intensity cardio, moderate intensity cardio is bro science, and that's not correct. I mean, there are lots of studies directly talking about du- direct fat oxidation and fat balance, and the fact that if you do moderate cardio in a mild, mostly fasted state, that you oxidize more fat, that's like exercise 101, and I think Lane knows that, um, but, you know, he also is a champion of the, of the higher-intensity kinds of, of cardio-type stuff. So, like I said, I think it, when you take a balanced look at the science, there's more than one way to skin a cat. That's all yeah, there is
4: to it. Exactly.
0: No. That's all um, I got. Okay, now I – so we can get to Mike because he's being very patient here. I'm going to let you guys judge. Do you want to hear about green tea extracts? I'm sorry, green coffee extracts. Or do you want to hear about that myostatin inhibitor?
2: Myostatin
3: inhibitor.
0: Okay. Sorry, everybody. Green tea gets. <laughs> again. I'm sorry. Green coffee. I'm so used to saying green tea. Here is the thing, um, and I actually, when I Googled around for this, I saw bottles appearing online. God, uh, already. But epigenetics, 2012 December. So this is new stuff, and that's why I think we're going to see a resurgence of myostatin inhibitors and rob you know as well as i do uh the pinnacle company and a couple of different companies metrics may have um but years ago they were selling myostatin inhibitors and again the idea here is that yeah. if you can suppress um a particular gene um and its results um you can unleash unlimited muscle growth you remove the brakes from muscle tissue yeah. um yeah.
1: and that was, that was all the rage there for uh, okay. and it didn't last for long cuz Clearly, whatever people were pumping out wasn't doing much of anything yeah. for anybody.
0: <laughs> well, this uh, new paper, uh, like I said, Epigenetics, 2012 December, Fan and Colleagues, um, it's a German paper from an animal science group. And I, I think this is interesting because these guys are always looking to make livestock meatier, right? More muscle means more meat uh, for us to eat. But I like it because it tends to be a little bit more objective than maybe than some of the um, potentially biased dietary supplement studies that you see. But it's entitled, uh, sulforaphane causes a major epigenetic repression of myostatin in porcine satellite cells. So this is in pigs. Uh, just real quickly. Satellite cells function as skeletal muscle stem cells to support postnatal muscle growth and regeneration following injury or disease, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it says the human diet contains many histone deacetylase inhibitors, such as the bioactive component sulforaphane. Uh, It goes on to say the present work provides the first evidence that essentially sulforaphane treatment significantly represses myostatin expression. Uh, And it goes on to say these findings reveal a new mode of epigenetic repression of myostatin by the bioactive compound uh, sulforaphane. This novel pharmaceutical biological activity in satellite cells may thus allow for the development of novel approaches to weaken the myostatin signaling pathway, both for therapies of human skeletal muscle disorders and for livestock production improvement. So pretty new paper there. It's, it's December 2012, and it's suggesting that sulforaphane is, um, a myostatin inhibitor. And like I said, I already saw bottles appearing online. Um, if you just go to Wikipedia and, you know, careful doing that, but it says sulforaphane is obtained from cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbages, uh, cauliflower, bok choy, kale, collards. it just There's a whole list of things in there. And, of course, they're trying to take this and concentrate it down with the hopes that you're going to suppress your myostatin little cellular system there and, and just have uncontrolled growth. It says, however, people taking prescription drugs are advised to consult a doctor before taking sulforaphane or broccoli sprout extracts because they affect drug metabolism. And it also says sulforaphane is in numerous clinical trials, including phase 2 trial for prostate cancer. Uh, so it is interesting, and if anything, I think what's going to come of this is not uh human beings, bodybuilders, or powerlifters that look like myostatin-deficient bulls. Um, I think what's going to come of this is the realization that, hey, maybe bodybuilders have stumbled across this already. I mean, Mike and I were talking before we hit record. Part of the pre-competition diet is tons of protein in cruciferous vegetables or fibrous veg, you know, so you'll see bodybuilders eating stuff like broccoli, Brussels sprouts, those kinds of things, cauliflower, um, partly because we're avoiding carbs, you know. But it's interesting that there may actually be a uh, substance in there that might mildly actually suppress the myostatin gene uh and maybe lead to a little more muscularity when it comes to getting on stage. Sure. Anyway, that's sort of the sober assessment, yeah. I think. Mm. Not that we're going to be walking around like giant muscle pillows. (laughs) Okay. So having said that, let's get to Mike. Thanks for your patience, Mike. Yeah, no problem. So first, tell listeners about yourself. What drew you into lifting, period? Because you have a strongman background, of course. And now, of course, we're going to be talking about Olympic lifting. But what's your story?
3: Well, actually, I mean, I started lifting weights when I was around... 10 or 11 years old. I was in fourth or fifth grade, and I just, you know, I saw World's Strongest Man one day when I was like five, and I was like, I got to do that. Always wanted to do it. Saw Bill Kazmaier compete, and I was just hooked. So I started picking up weights, started training, and then all through middle school played sports, high school played sports, and I was always lifting. And, you know, when I was in eighth grade, I could bench 225. I was five foot ten and 185 pounds with a beard. So I was a little bit of a different kid. <laughs> And then when I got into high school, my freshman year, I discovered that you could actually compete in Strongman through, I believe it's NAS Inc now, but it was just NAS North American Strongman Society. So got linked up with them and started competing all through high school and also did a little bit of powerlifting at the state level. And, you know, it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed it. And, you know, I got rocks in my backyard and big tires. And then when I was, just shy of being 21, I tore my bicep tendon getting ready for a pretty big strongman contest. It was it ended up getting canceled, ironically. But Phil Pfister was holding a competition. I think it was like 15 guys got invited, and that was because I won the state meet as a heavyweight. And you know, I was pulling some big rack deadlifts, and I just tore it. And then I kind of reevaluated things. And once I reevaluated everything, came back from the injury after some surgery, I realized that you know I got a little bit of a better frame and a better potential at Olympic lifting and that's where I wanted to go. You know, with Strongman, I go six foot. Right now, I'm 100 kilos, so about 220. Back when I was even competing, I was, you know, closer to 300 pounds, but those guys nowadays in Strongman are six foot eight, you know, or 50. And I'm not saying I couldn't compete with them. The guy who took second place this past year, I think, was 5'10". But, you know, I'm just not one of those guys. I definitely think my potential lies more in Olympic lifting. I'm pretty athletic. I've got, you know little bit shorter legs, big hips, you know, so I got a little bit of a good frame for that. So that's what kinda got me started. And then last couple of years I started searching for coaches and got linked up with Dan Bell originally, who founded the Columbus Weightlifting Club, I think in two thousand one. And then the guy who's running it currently his name is Mark Canella. I ended up moving down to Columbus this past summer and I've been training with those guys ever since. It's cool.
1: And you're doing and you're doing quite well. <laughs> Apparently.
3: Uh I'm not doing too bad. It's actually just quite recently I got linked up with the uh independent film director in Akron. And what happened was he did an art exhibit where I had a a picture and it was an old-timey strong man. I had a handlebar mustache, I shaved head, and I had a singlet on like a one-sleeve singlet. And once he did that, I told him that well my goal was to make the Olympics and he goes, "Oh, it'd be a great film. I'd love to direct that. Let's let's start, you know, let's shoot a video, let's shoot a little bit of a promo." and we'll start setting up a website and everything so the last couple weeks you know we got a a small promo of me just doing actually some assisted exercises and interviewing just kind of giving some background and then you know we got the twitter's up the fan page is up so right now you know we're just watching me train and filming and everything so hopefully in the next four years we'll have a pretty good documentary with a good ending you know everybody everybody likes an underdog everybody likes a rocky and In this country, you know, we're not really known for Olympic lifting. You know, this past Olympics, we had three lifters, which was great. You know, one of them was my teammate and, you know, super excited for her. And then the other two, you know, were great athletes, great competitors. So I was really pumped for them as well. And it's like, wow, three people out of a country (laughs) of how many million? You know, how many big, strong people don't make, you know, don't make it to the pros in football? Or how many fast, small people are, you know, in gymnastics or track? It's like, you know i love to see this sport kind of develop a little bit. And hopefully this documentary, you know, we're kind of referring to the, the Holy Grail of documentaries and pumping iron. And there's some decent parallels I think possible. You know, I don't know if I have quite the flair of Arnold. I met him. I mean, the guy's still got the charisma to this day. But, you know, we got, there's some good parallels, and I think we could actually pan out and make a really good movie. You know, all I got to do is lift the weights and compete and do well. So if, if people want to watch, there, there's a first installment, right? What's the web, web address? Uh, correct. Yeah, we have, we have one kind of teaser trailer at the moment and the website is com. So that would be the easiest way to get a hold of me. There's a contact information. We're still, we're still working on it. It's a very, very new website. Like we're good at adding about me. We're adding photos, you know, anything like that. And then, you know, the film director's looking for any kind of contributions or anything along those lines because to make a film, it's actually, Surprisingly, an independent film in the grand schemes so is not very expensive, but we're doing it all out of pocket, so we're just trying to band everybody together and try to make a really, really good movie.
2: So no pressure, but it seems like to make this a resounding success that you need to make the Olympics.
3: At minimum, to make this a very good movie, I would say making yeah. the Olympics. Yeah. That's good, though. I mean, Go for it, man. I mean, and I love, that's got kind of a great thing. Like, you know, all I honestly, all I have to do is lift and just yeah. kind of film what I'm doing. So, you know, and that's where the parallel comes to Pumping Iron. Arnold had Lou Ferrigno. The current world champion is a guy about my age. His name, last name, I think, Salimi. He's from Iran. Big kid. You know, I know people in the U.S. have, you know, the conflicts with the Middle East and whatnot. It's kind of like, you know, Rocky. It's like us versus the Russians. So, I mean, if I could get there and him and I are one, 2 you know, that would make this movie epic. Yeah. If it was him and I duking it out for gold. Okay, well, let's go ahead and we're going to go to break.
0: When we come back, uh, we're going to continue to talk to Mike about um, Olympic lifting. And the topic of the day is going to be transitioning from other strength sports into Olympic lifting, which, of course, is something that Mike and, and Phil can uh, you know fill us in on. So we'll be right back.
4: Hello, Iron Radio listeners. This is Dr. Lowry. I just want to offer an update on the Protein and Resistance exercise book that you hear about in ads at the end of the show. The publisher and I realize that the textbooks have become expensive. This one's $99. So individual electronic chapters have been made available for $20. As with Iron Radio, my primary drive here is to get valid, reliable information into the hands of fellow lifters. So if you simply Google CRC Press Protein, you'll find the page where the book is sold. By clicking on eBook purchase at the right, you'll be taken to a page with free introductory parts of the book, as well as each chapter in electronic PDF format. There's also links uh, to other sources in this version. So whether you're interested in an academic heavy hitter like Dr. Peter Lemon sharing Protein's history in strength training, or you're a biochem nerd like me and you want to just look at chapter two on protein synthesis and breakdown, or if you want to cut to the chase and get to a chapter on using protein weight control or case studies, you can now do so for just 20 bucks. So please check out CRC Press Protein and see which chapter topic may interest you. Thanks. <laughs>
0: strongman and now Olympic lifter, and the topic for today is going to be transitioning from other strength sports into Olympic lifting. We've talked about this a little bit in episodes past about transitioning from bodybuilding to powerlifting or vice versa, um, but Olympic lifting, I'm guessing, is a little bit a different animal, right?
3: Yeah, Olympic lifting compared to my powerlifting background and my strongman background, like I know a lot of power lifters who are actually super athletic guys, but then you get some people who really aren't, and that's okay. They're super strong, and they're really good at what they do. I know Ed Cohen, when he was a kid, had to go to a a special school where they put blinders on him because he couldn't walk down the hallway and bounce a ball. You know, fantastic powerlifter. The guy was a complete and utter animal, you know, really good at what he did, but, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot of coordination, you know, and that's okay. But then you kind of step up to, I have tiers. I'd say powerlifting, you can get away with being the least athletic. And then I'd say strongman, you do have to be somewhat athletic because you're moving, you're carrying, you're lifting. And then I'd say Olympic lifting, you know, that's where you are just an athlete. You have to really be quick and coordinated and have good timing. So kind of coming from that background, I'm used to, you know, snapping off ammonia, screaming before a big deadlift or during a big deadlift. Where in Olympic lifting – if you watch the sport, you know, there's some guys get a little animated, but a little animated is about as best as you get. I mean, some guys will scream, but you know, it's a little bit more reserved, and that's probably one of the biggest mental transitions I had to make is I got to be able to contain it a little bit more cuz I've watched lifters who try to let it out and try to get a little crazy and you know, 90% of the time you you see them fail. You know, I watched a couple of guys at Nationals try to hype the crowd up yeah. and then They'd catch a, they'd catch their clean, stand up with it, and then they wouldn't even attempt the jerk with weights they hit. And these two particular individuals, I'm not going to name them, but both of them did so poorly because they did those stunts that they knocked themselves right off a potential Pan Americans team, you know? And I think that kind of took away a little bit from their focus when I was standing there watching. So I'd say mentally that was the biggest one. And then the other one is, I mean, it is just, I've heard it equated to, it's like golfing with 400 pounds. And I would agree with that. It's so technical. It's so involved. You know, with a golf swing, if you're off by a quarter inch, you slice the ball. In weightlifting, you know, if you're doing a heavy snatch and you're a quarter inch out in front, you're going to miss it out in front. Game over. So, Phil, what, what are your thoughts about that? A game
2: of
0: inches for sure? Oh, for
2: sure. And definitely more so than powerlifting. I, I see a lot of parallels in making a transition from somebody that's a powerlifter to being a thrower. Um, yeah, but, it's it's a yeah, lot do, more I do, I do, athletic, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of that stuff going on. And, yeah, it is a game of inches, and it's, you know, there's a reason why there's such sophisticated tracking software and stuff for coaches and stuff like that. Because, you know, a quarter inch can make a huge difference. Um, and then the build. But, I mean, I'd say the American side, I think it's good that you're coming from a powerlifting and strongman background because, I mean, you look at the American team and I'd say we're not getting beat because we're not technical. We're getting beat on the world stage because we're not strong. In my personal opinion. You know, even Shane Hammond said that, you know, which is arguably our best lifter in quite a while. And, you know, on the world stage, he was weak. And he, yeah. You know, he came from, I mean, he, he said he was amazed when he walked into the, the practice hall at the Olympics and saw the you know, in the warm-up room, what those guys were putting up for squats and stuff, he was he was nothing. So,
3: yeah, and I definitely agree with that. You know, there's there's definitely there's some new lifters coming up who are very technically sound. They just the word phrase I'm going to use they kind of lack a little bit of horsepower, mm-hmm. and. I agree we need to focus a lot on technique. That's the way my coaches, like Mark Canella is really, really technique, like efficient. I mean, he can see, he can look at you when you grab the bar and he could say you're, you know, just a smidge too much. I'm talking like a quarter of an inch. Mm -hmm. He'll notice those kind of differences and that's what matters. But you know, right now I'm doing a Russian squat program. I squat three days a week for six weeks. You know, that's one of the things we definitely try to emphasize and focus on, like my heavyweight teammate. Holly Mangold uh, was right around, you know, 500-pound ass-to-calf squat. And she's, you know, 20, I think she just turned 22 or 23, Mm -hmm. you know, year-old female, squatting 500, you know, catching the balance out of the bottom. I mean, she's a brute. My other teammate, you know, Heather Smith, she's very, very strong. Drew Dillon, I mean, that's a big focus is, you know, Mark definitely hounds the technique, but all of us train very extensively in the strength aspect. And I think that coming from Strongman, I have a unique perspective. Like, I know how to get my squat and deadlift over 600 pounds because I've had them there before. The big difference with Olympic lifting is, you know, the high bar squats, the deadlifts that you don't grind up the knees, you know, things like that. That Mm -hmm. I've only been in the sport training it consistently with a coach for a year, a little over a year. And I'm just now starting to figure out where I can really lay down horsepower now. And that's... You know, in the next six months, I'm really excited to see where my lifts take me because I'm really starting to be able to rip the bar underneath, you know, pull myself under, get the big squats, you know, catch the bounces and get some more of the, you know, the minor details now, which, you know, strength can only make up for it so much. Yeah. You know, Kendrick Ferris, phenomenal athlete. The guy is ridiculously strong, ridiculously fast, you know, does not have the most proficient technique to say the least, but, I mean, he's still an international level competitor because he gets away with speed and strength. Yeah. You know, I might not be quite as freakishly athletic as him, but I know I can get very, very strong, so I have to have my technique yeah. dialed in to back it up, or I'm going to get my ass kicked. Yeah. I don't know. So,
2: uh, go
3: ahead, Dylan. Oh, no, go ahead, Phil. I was
2: just going to say, I mean, another parallel or a difference, I guess, between the two sports. I think powerlifting, you can get away without having a coach to a bit. I mean, I think at the top end, you really should have one. But Olympic lifting, did you do good at all? I think you, you damn near have to have a coach there all the time, unless you're like Tommy Kono and you train in the basement by yourself and you're just a freak. But uh,
3: Oh, agreed. You know, 100%, I mean, there's – hundred percent, you know. Because it is so why. technical. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. Agreed. Like, there's no question about it. That's why, actually, because my, my first coach, Dan Bell, he lives in Canton, and that's when we started working, you know, one, maybe two days a week in between. Like, he didn't have a club set up in Akron, and he actually just set up a club. It's a Rubber City Weightlifting Club but he didn't have that kind of time because, you know, and actually I love CrossFit for this because they've really expanded Olympic lifting. He works out of a CrossFit mm-hmm. gym and they gave him the room and a job so he could actually start a club. But that's the one, that's like the biggest thing behind Mark Canella is like, he has a full-time job, but in the evenings, you know, between three thirty and five ish, usually, you know, you can count on Mark there five days a week. Yeah. You know, he's going to be in there, you know, if you need to talk training with them, you get him on the phone, he'll, you know, give you your workouts. Like, and he's on it, yeah. you know, and that that is. That's extremely important that every single time, you know, we're in there hitting lifts, Mark's sitting there watching us, giving us cues, because even our best lifters, you know, I'd say personally, Drew Dillon, he's an 85-kilo lifter. He's our best technician. I mean, he's quick. He looks like a European. I mean, he moves really, really well. You know, we're all trying to catch his technique and his speed. But even then, you know, Mark will be like, oh, you know, you're a quarter inch too far out with your hips. Yeah. or. You know, you're you're not pulling under quite as quick with that left arm versus your right. So I mean, even somebody as proficient as Drew, and I think Drew's been with Mark for three years, you know, he does he's not down to the point where he can just be by himself. Yeah. You know, I don't think anybody ever gets to that point. And that's that was definitely an eye opener. That's why once I actually attempted to train it for a couple of weeks on my own, I'm like, ah, I'm not doing this right. <laughs> I got to find somebody. Yeah. I got to find somebody who knows way more than I do. Yeah.
0: Let me follow up on that then. And Phil, you can chime in, of course, too and Rob, if if you have anything, of course, as well, but what about the traditions and the politics of Olympic lifting? I mean, do you see differences between that and and powerlifting? Let me give you an example. Like, for example, uh, we've talked before about uh, how somebody who's a big-time champion in powerlifting or bodybuilding, the champs tend to stay the champs because they're very – the judges, frankly, are more lenient with them. You know, I mean, do you see any – Room for that kind of um, politics, or are the traditions you know weird or different to you in any way?
3: Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. I was very fortunate last year that I got hooked up with Dan in coaching because I worked at the Arnold Classic meet, which happened to be nationals for Olympic lifting, and it was the Olympic trials for women. So by being there and being kind of like one of Mark's right-hand men, you know, I would run errands, take care of like you know the volunteers, and just help them out wherever I could. I got to witness though firsthand what some of the judges would call as bad lifts, and I know lately there's been a lot of shifts. I'm pretty sure they're voting, or they did vote for a new president of USA Weightlifting. You know, Rick Adams was a good guy. He was in position for a long time, and then he got, you know, bumped up to a new position, so he's gone. Like So there's constantly shifts. So, you know, sometimes judges, I have noticed, you can see are a lot stricter. You know, sometimes they don't give You know, the club who's hosting the meet, they might really hold their lifters to a little bit of a higher standard than sometimes, you know, they're a little more lax because the lifters are the ones holding it. So I have noticed some of those things. That's actually speaking of like just being coming from Strongman. That's the one thing though that made me the happiest about Strongman because most of the events in Strongman, you can't refute. If you load the stone onto the platform in the order and it sits there, there's no way a judge can say, well, that doesn't count. And you know, it's a very, very objective sport. Where in Olympic lifting, it's mostly objective. You know, sometimes you get the press outs. Sometimes they're obvious. Sometimes they're very quick. But if you notice at international level shows, I mean, if you pay attention to how those competitors lift and stuff, I mean, they're so good and so dialed in. I mean, I can't remember the last time I've seen any elite guy get called for a press out, you know. So, I mean, that kind of goes with both ways. But, yeah, I've seen it at the local level. You kind of look at somebody and be like, oh, wow, you just gave him that lift, and, like, you know, you'd be standing there with your coach and a couple of your teammates, so, like, well, that guy clearly just shoulder-pressed that weight.
2: And I guess right. you, I guess you could see that um, in any sport, you know, especially if it's a big name coming up, because the judges are just, they're full-on expecting this guy's going to do it right. So even if they see something small, they're like, Nah, I couldn't have seen that because <laughs> he does it right. Uh, but I don't know. I think, like, it, it, there's a little bit of object- objectivity, but... Uh, the rules, it, it's also such a fast sport that a kilo can make a difference between it being obviously good or obviously bad.
0: Phil, can you let let listeners in on, like Mike just mentioned, press out, or what are some of the ways that the guys, I don't want to say would cheat, would, would work their th- way through a lift that would end up being a failed
2: lift? And make it and get it not called bad? Yeah, like what, what, what leads to a, a bad lift other than obvious failure? Well, yeah, like he said, a press-out, meaning the bar doesn't just jettison itself directly to press-out. Like, there can't be to, to lock-out. In okay. Olympic lifting, there can be no press. Mm-hmm. You pretty much have to just, you know, you jerk it and it has to go directly to lock-out. There can't be no grind. There is no grinding at all left in Olympic lifting since the press was taken out. So, I mean, they're all, it's totally explosive lifting. You know, in a snatch, it can't, it's just got to fall right in the slot. You can't, you know, catch it on soft elbows and, and press it out. So...
0: It, just from a naive perspective, why is that considered bad?
3: Why is a press out bad?
2: It's just the rules of the sport, you know. It, it's a total explosive sport. It's it, well, it's more. It's not really upper body strength anymore.
3: It it really isn't. No. And actually, I think the the press out and the soft elbows. I think from experience, and I mean, Phil, you can back me up on this one. If you catch a sna- heavy snatch with soft elbows and you don't immediately press it out, it's coming straight <laughs> for your back. Yeah, like you that know, happened this year. The yeah, exactly. Like, I've put one down my back. I've just barely missed from underneath one. Uh, you know, with jerks, it's not quite as bad, typically, because if you're in out in front with a press-out, which is usually, I mean, for me personally, if I ever end with a press-out, it's usually out in front. You can kind of bail out from under it, but then occasionally you start that, that press-out when it's right above your ears, right behind your, you know, your head, and if you don't get out of the way, I mean... Yeah. You know, that's, that's the only time that sport ever really becomes a little bit dangerous is, you know, that's where bars and elbows and shoulders go out of whack is when you have soft elbows, you're trying for a press out because you're putting more pressure on the joints than they're supposed to be taken.
0: Okay, gotcha. So there's, there's safety issues behind a think, lot of that. Yeah,
3: safety is a big one. And, like, you know, you're not going to complete the lift sometimes, too, unless you
2: do it right. It's just not the sport. The sport is just totally explosive.
3: No, I get you. A, I mean, there's yeah. got to be rules to any sport, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean,
2: and that's, you know, in a lot <laughs> of ways... This
3: isn't NOM why... here, guys. Do what? I oh, said so this isn't NOM, there are rules. Yeah,
2: I yeah, no, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the, the biggest difference in, you know, Olympic lifting and powerlifting, whereas powerlifting is totally a grinding sport. And you'll see people, I, I've had lifters that can't, they excel at powerlifting because they're, uh, they are a slow grinding lifter. Like me, I have a horrible clean in relation to my deadlift. I'm, I'm not that explosive, but I'm like a crane. You know, so. Hey, um, a
0: question for Mike: How does your nutrition differ, or does it does it differ? Do they look at nutrition recovery differently in Olympic lifting versus what you've done before?
3: Well, see, with with Olympic lifting compared to like my strongman powerlifting, those were ninety nine percent of my powerlifting and strongman. Only one contest did I attempt to make a weight class, and I made it. It wasn't hard, but like you know, I was usually super heavy, or I was always, you know, easily under my weight class significantly. With Olympic lifting, that, that's kind of a two-fold thing. Right now, my coach wants me to lean out a little bit and then grow back into the 105 class, tighter, leaner, more solid. Well, the flip side, I'm also training doubles Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So trying to factor in my pre- and post-workout, you know, nutrition, usually something carb-based for both, with... You know, two workouts three times a week makes it really tricky because I'm trying to lose weight. So I need to get enough calories to recover from workout A to get to workout B, but not have so many calories where I'm just, you know, gaining useless weight. So it's really, really tough because I'm kind of, you know, at a catch 22. It's like I got to eat enough that I recover so I can survive. But then, you know, if I eat too much, I'm going to, you know, continue to gain weight or stay at the same weight I'm at, which, you know, isn't really the goal. So that's made it a lot more difficult because. That's why, you know, I'm definitely, I'm excited not to be fat as a super heavy. I'm just excited that, you know, I don't have to worry as much about stuff like that. So it's like, you know, oh, man, I just killed, you know, six doubles with, you know, 250 kilos on the squat. I can turn around and be like, oh, I'm going to eat sweet potatoes. Today's going to be a great day. For now, it's kind of like, okay, you know, is today a high day? So I get, you know, 300 grams of carbs and I got to keep the fats low or, you know, so you can't. As I call it, it's not really letting out the monster because, you know, with powerlifting and strongman, if I just ripped into, you know, a three-hour workout, you know, I ate clean. I ate really clean, but it would go home, and it's like, okay, 12 ounces of ground beef or a huge steak and, you know, two giant baked potatoes or a sweet potato post-workout, life is good. Is everybody that calculated? Like you're talking about literally counting grams of carbs and whatnot? You know, I've noticed with my teammates, we're all definitely either – You know, some of my teammates are where they need to be, and they're staying there, and that is awesome. I'm really happy for them. You know, they're they're just getting tighter and stronger, but they're at a good weight, and they're solid. You know, not everybody. In my team in particular, no, no one's really calculated. Like, I am, and I think that's part of, you know, being associated with you guys and coming from the background of, like, you know, I briefly did a couple of bodybuilding diet downs. You know, I didn't do a comp test, but I've done 16-week cuts before. And coming from that background of getting it from, you know, Lonnie and one of my other friends who is a bodybuilder, like they kind of got the right mentality in me, like how to focus on my training and my eating because I knew that my eating is so important. So I think more like a bodybuilder. You know, usually I use a high-low-carb cycling type diet, and that seems to really work well for me. I fire off on all cylinders. I feel great. I train harder. I lift better. But, you know, so most of my teammates, are they don't even touch carbs. You know, they eat none at all, which – Hey, if that works for him great, I support you. But me personally, I've tried, you know, for a couple of months going very low carb consistently and, you know, I gas very easily. I don't hold any of my, you know, my mass, like my good mass, and you know, I just feel like walking death. So it's not like I'm sitting around pounding candy bars, but you know, I like sweet potatoes, white potatoes, you know, things of that nature timed right, you know, I think they work well. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty
0: reminiscent of what we've all said. I mean, I don't, I don't think any of the three of us, Rob or Phil or I, would want to train with no carbs. Oh. You know, that, oh. that just the reason I'm pounding re- vanilla
2: wafers and lemon pound cake as we speak. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well done. Which is
2: the
3: best way to train. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: um, okay, I've got one last question. Uh, well actually, two. Phil, first I wanted to ask you. So, because of the increased frequency or volume of the way Olympic lifters go about things. Um, do you have clients that you and your wife work with? Do you h- watch their nutrition differently, or how do you do that compared to your other clients?
2: It depends on the weight class mainly. Mm-hmm. You know, like he's saying. I mean, if you got somebody that's that's heavy, they just need to be heavy in a lot of cases. Um, <laughs> the only thing I'll mess with is, you know, if, if they're close to a weight class, we need to, we need to stay there. And usually that's, I mean, honestly, the... The reason you're staying in a weight class usually is because that's where your strength fits. You're not strong enough to move up, or, or you move better there. So yeah, we will mess with that a little bit. Um, and you've yeah. got to be sure to put in the the, the Perry workout nutrition if you're going for two days and stuff like that. But uh,
0: well, that's what I'm thinking, you know, in particular because normally you get guys like David Barr kind of questioning the post workout, you know, carb window and that sort of thing. And and I've given that a lot of thought myself. I mean, let's face it, if you're not going to lift again till Tomorrow yeah. or even the next day, how critical is it to resynthesize all your glycogen right now? Right yeah, now, yeah. no, and when that's, it's probably going to happen over the next day or so anyway. But w- if you've got a two a day
2: yeah. now, like Mike said, you better watch that peri workout. Well, and that's, the, the, that's the thing is, I'm very much more into the pre than I am the, the, the post, and it even works on a two a day as long as you know, because honestly, your second pre is a post, so you know, yeah, as long yeah. as you get some carbs in there before it it tends to work for me and and the people i've worked with um yeah i mean i don't pay as much attention to to post-workout i mean i i don't have anybody pound back a bunch of carbs afterwards and stuff like that we just eat Mm -hmm. um and i like I've, i've seen good results with people making sure they do before and we seem to burn through it and you know if i have a couple donuts before i go deadlift a crap load then i'm gonna burn it off mostly so right Okay. I have one last,
0: the last question I was going to ask was, uh, for either of you guys really. Would you suggest it back to this transition notion? If you have done bodybuilding or powerlifting, would you rapidly, would you just sort of drop that, take a couple of weeks off and then just start something totally different? You know what I mean? Would you kind of go all at once or would you take several weeks or several months to transition? Would your training slowly change or would you just change it all at once? Mike, what about you?
3: Well, I mean, with something like that, it really depends on the person, you know, if they're, you you know, a lot of bodybuilders were former athletes. If you're very athletic, can pick up things very quickly, have good flexibility, then, I mean, you definitely can transition a little bit quicker. You know, we work with a lot of newbies at the club and everything, and that's great, but, you know, the first couple weeks typically is working on getting their squats and their hips opened up so they can squat properly, you know, before they really start to move in to actually doing the lifts. So they'll do you know, squats, and they'll do deadlifts up to the knee to get, you know, just start getting a little work into the positions because usually you don't catch somebody who's athletic and prime. Now, a good example is my girlfriend is a pole vaulter and a long jumper, and she's finishing up her season and definitely considering giving Olympic lifting a shot. She's got a really good frame for it. She's ridiculously athletic. I mean, she can pick up cues quickly. She can control the bar really well. She's the type of person that, you know, You're really not going to have to do position work, like, just uh, strictly position work with her. You know, you can definitely need to do that regardless, but you're going to take her, and she'll be able to pick up the actual lifts, you know, in a couple weeks. She she might even be better than I am. You know, she's one of those people that whatever sport she touches, she just gets really good at. So if you have somebody like that, you know, yeah, they can go right into it. You know, but everybody needs to start somewhere, so I wouldn't necessarily jump complete ship on your former stuff at first especially if you're not really great at it because you know that's just going to make it frustrating if all you do is squat a couple of days a week and you you know came from being a good bodybuilder i still would do some bodybuilding movements and still train a little bit that way you know as you're learning then you could start to kind of progress more into it but if you're an athlete or you know you're one of those all or nothing people then yeah just go for it
2: yeah and i think that's what that's more to help your mindset than it is anything wouldn't you say
3: like, I mean, yeah, you yeah. you don't ever want to come into a sport. Let's be honest; nobody wants to suck exactly. at anything, you know. And, you know, if you're going to jump into, like I said, I, I still always think it's like golf. Yeah. You know, golf's the worst sport ever when it comes to. You can have a good day or a bad day. It can take you 50 years to ever get good yeah. at golf. Yeah. You know, it's a very frustrating sport. So, you know, I've actually talked to a couple of people who are like, "Oh, I'm so frustrated with my lifting." Yeah. I've been at it a little over a year, and it took me, you know, like six months to really properly get a good. Hip movement on the bar yeah. when I go under for my cleans. You know, that was six months. Six. Yeah. You know, you get, you can get better at playing a claw game or something in six weeks, let alone <laughs> six months.
2: Yeah. Right. No, I agree. I mean, and I think it has to do with the mindset of the lifter. It's like, if, if they can handle it, they just gotta know you're gonna come in and do a bunch of mundane crap. There's gonna be technical work. And I mean, part of me, that's the most interesting part, is the way coaches have broken down Olympic lifts into, Little useful moves to learn, you know, lift-offs, poles, and you know. There's, there's so much you can do and still get a fairly good workout in while working technique. So, yeah. but there's just that makes they sense. have to realize there's just going to be, especially if you're just starting, you're going to be working technique and you're not going to stop for a decade. <laughs> you know, you're just always no. going to be working it. So,
3: and there's no, there's really no way around that either. No. I mean, you know, I'm just starting to get to the point where I can really especially with my snatch, I'm really starting to whip like myself under the bar. You know, I'm still tweaking a few other things, but now I know once the bar gets to a certain point, I'm just naturally pulling myself under finally and really getting good at it. You know, that's been 13 months in the making, you know, and when I mean 13 months, when I started, I started with a coach. I started training doubles last March. You know, I quit my job for a couple of reasons, but one of it was to train full-time, because that's what kind of time I had to devote to this sport to get good at it. And like I said, 13 months later, you know, I'm starting to get down where I'm starting to throw up okay numbers for my weight class, you know, hopefully the goal is to make nationals, you know, things like that. So, you know, it's time-consuming. You just got to go for it. Okay, now we are almost out of
0: time, but I just want to offer a follow-up inquiry here. So, because of the skill nature, so are you are you guys saying the – the learning curve is more challenging, like oh. compared to let's say powerlifting oh, yeah. or what you did in strongman.
3: 100. Yeah. percent I mean, some people can come into strongman and you know they could just be farmers or just you know those bullish kind of animal strength people, and they could lift rocks. You know, just not to uh, not to bash it, but you could just be a hillbilly. You know, there's some big, just thick, you know, six foot five guys who throw bales of hay their whole life. And then one day somebody suggests strongman, and they've been picking up rocks anyways to get them off the field, and they just know how to do it, you know. And you can get away with just being a bull. There's some people that are just naturally big and strong, you know. So, but in Olympic lifting, yeah, you can be really strong, but, you know, you could have all the strength in the world. If you don't got any technique or timing behind it, you're screwed. You're not going to get very far. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason I ask is,
0: I mean, I wouldn't want to insult any powerlifters who consider that there's a, thousand nuances to benching or squatting properly you know what I mean I don't want to make it sound like that's an unskilled
4: sport no, and there is
2: the but. Level, but it's different you know I you're 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 ignorant if you think it's not um, so. yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't So I'm a power lifter you know I'm a power yeah. lifter so I don't mind this stuff other of powerlifters. power lifters, but no and it well, depends I, on the person you know I mean there's a reason I think it's the Chinese team like makes people use just the bar for a year before you get a weight you know, but I, I, like, I've had a kid come in here, I have an 11-year-old who's a wrestler, baseball player, basketball, track and field, and it took me five minutes to teach him a decent clean. I might have another person in and take us three sessions. You know, so. just Highly suspense. individual. So. Yeah.
0: Okay. <sighs> Any closing thoughts? Because we are just about out of time, guys. No, I'm going to go train.
2: <laughs>
0: you got, you're wired up now? I am. Ready I'm to go.
2: amped up. So. All
0: right, Fortress, anything out of you? No, I'm, uh, I'm good. <laughs> okay, well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week, and uh, we'll see you then. Thanks a lot. Catch you later. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters Hey, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek—only for Iron Radio listeners—at this point. If you Google CRC Press, Lowry L-O-W-E-R-Y, and protein, you can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes. Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types practical applications and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the the state-of-the-art science. And if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say,
4: this is what the literature says about stressed kidneys or bone
0: loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here. I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however. Obviously, I haven't done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a
4: population like ours.